1: Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at borough.com slash ACAST. That's borough.com slash ACAST. borough.com slash ACAST. Far from a thundering disgrace, the Paddy Dunnegan
2: story. This documentary is supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland's Sound and Vision Scheme.
3: Michael Heaney with a special edition of the News at 6.30. First, the latest developments
4: from Don Coburn. The President has announced his resignation. The following statement was issued at Ordersen-Oaktheroen at 6 o'clock this evening. Today, the 22nd of October, 1976, at Ordersen-Oaktheroen, on Thoaktheron, Carol O'Dawler executed under his hand and seal his resignation from the office of the President of Ireland with effect from 6 o'clock this evening. Over now to Donald Kelly of our political staff, who is in Leinster
5: House. Well, the announcement from Orison Oakthrown has come like a bombshell at Denster House, though for the past couple of hours there had been intense speculation that something major was imminent. Mr O'Dalli's move clearly puts the government in the most embarrassing possible position, signalling as it does his unhappiness with their handling of the controversy, which blew up following the remarks by the Minister for Defence, Mr Donegan, that he was a thundering disgrace.
2: Within days of
5: Minister for Defence Paddy
2: Donegan criticising the President, Carole O'Dalli was gone. What really happened in the Midlands on that Monday evening to cause a political crisis? Don Lavery was the cub
5: reporter there who broke the story. On that particular day I had come back from a weekend in London and I had been marked as we say to cover that event which was the Defence Minister opening a canteen and dining facilities in Cullum Barracks in Mullingar which was the local army barracks. Unfortunately it's closed now. Um, so it is a fairly routine, fairly boring marking. I went up to the barracks, and uh, as it turned out, I was the only reporter there. Nobody else deemed it worthy of coverage. I was there a short while, and Mr. Dunnigan arrived, along with a couple of Army press officers. Uh, I asked one of the press officers for a copy of his script of his speech. Uh, Mr. Dunnigan overheard and came over to me and gave me his speech. And In fact, it was the only copy of the script available. So I had a look at that uh, speech. It was pretty dull. There was nothing in it. So I gave it back to him and thanked him. And he did the opening and uh, had a walk around, and eventually we had lunch in the in the canteen, the new canteen. Um, I was sitting opposite uh, Mr. Dunnigan uh, at the lunch table, about eight to ten inches away from him. Um, I knew what was in the script. I expected it to be a pretty boring speech. He stood up in front of me to make a speech. He took the script in one hand and he threw it down in front of me, and he said, "I'll give you some news for the press." And he then launched into uh, um, an off-the-cuff speech, which was totally departed from the official script, uh, basically criticizing the president in regard to the emergency powers bill. uh, Why had he sent it to the um, Supreme Court? In the middle of that uh, speech, he uh, very succinctly said, in my opinion, he is a thundering disgrace and looked directly at me and he made a couple of more remarks and then sat down. Now, at the time, I had a very good shorthand. Uh, I took a good shorthand note of his, of his speech. Um, I was sitting beside an army press officer that I knew, and he kicked me very sharply on the, on, on the shin um, just to make sure I understood the importance of what had happened. Uh, I had, really, because uh, the president was the supreme commander of the defence forces, and Paddy Donegan had just insulted him in front of a room full of commissioned army officers who owed the president their loyalty. Um, nobody objected, nobody walked out. And Mr. Donegan, when he was coming out of the, the canteen, asked a senior army officer, what did you think of that? And the army officer said to him, uh, straight from the shoulder as usual, minister. So I had no doubt that he said exactly what he wanted to say. He said it in his own inimitable style. So I walked back to my office and the local correspondent, uh, the editor, was away for that day. So I filed my story to the uh, Daily Papers and to RTE and uh, then all hell broke loose, basically. 1976 was one of the worst years of the Troubles,
2: with Loyalists bombing Dublin and Monaghan and the IRA murdering British Ambassador Christopher Ewart Biggs and Garda Michael Clerkin. Was this playing on Paddy's mind? His good friend
6: Jim Mooney thinks so. This guard had uh, been blown up as he entered a house in County Leash and uh, he had been very troubled over this. I actually remember to see him crying as he told me the story of what had happened. He was so concerned about what happened and he says to me, look, we're going to have to bring in legislation to make sure this never happens again. It had troubled him so much to think that this poor guard had been... Killed, and nothing had been done about it.
2: Chris Glennon, political correspondent of the Irish Independent, underlines
7: the magnitude of what had happened. I had a day off on the day it actually happened and uh, I was playing golf uh, in the Dublin Journalist Golf Society and when I came in after golf uh, the story had broken. So the idea of a, a meal and that after the golf was banjaxed and I immediately headed to Leinster House. And there was no doubt from the word go uh, that it it was a real constitutional crisis and it certainly developed into into a big one.
2: Joe Keneally, Paddy's official driver, had reservations about his attending the event at all and was in no doubt afterwards about the implications of what he said. Uh, We had
8: a long discussion about that. Before we went at all, I didn't want him to go at all, really. I thought it would be a bit ridiculous. Anyway, he was the boss and he wanted to go and that's that. And uh, what happened there, of course, was, well, that'd be out of our control. But on the way home, we just got through, you asked me what I thought about it, and I, I told them you were in serious trouble over this. Or, I think so, but it was too late then to do anything about it. It had already
0: happened, and of course,
8: once it reached the airwaves.
2: Roseanne, Paddy's daughter, was boarding as the news broke.
0: I was at school, and I, I remember we we'd go into the ref at tea time, you know, and the radio was on and I could I heard something in the background about uh, P.S. Dunningham but you know in a school with I don't know so many hundred girls so you couldn't hear it and then Sister Eukarya, who's from Drogheda actually called me from the ref and brought me into the religion room and she told me that it was all a big storm in a teacup and not to worry about a thing and everything was fine it was just a storm in a teacup but she never told me what had happened (laughs) so I didn't really hear then until the next day, and it was, it was what it was, you know. So what went on
2: between Monday and Thursday behind the scenes in an attempt to resolve matters?
7: The Taoiseach of the day, Liam Cosgrove, used a payphone to ring the Auris and offer his apologies to the President, but the President didn't receive the call, wouldn't take the call, and Paddy Donegan offered his resignation Liam Cosgrove to defuse the thing and Cosgrove refused. Now I never found out whether Liam Cosgrove refused because of his friendship with Paddy or whether he refused because he instinctively felt that since the President wouldn't take a phone call from him, the resignation of the Minister wasn't going to sort it either. I don't think he should have stood by Paddy at the time. Uh, I think it did a lot of damage uh, to uh, the image of, the, of of the government you know, the, the idea that a uh, a minister for defense would in effect insult uh, the titular head of the defense forces like in 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 a theoretical sense but in a constitutional sense as well the president is the commander in chief of the defense forces if somebody else had some other minister had said it it would have had less of an impact but uh, I, I, I believed at the time, and I still believe, uh, that Liam Cosgrove should have accepted Paddy's resignation. And it was unfortunate. like uh, the, the, in, in many ways, I, I regarded Paddy as a decent man and, uh, you know, understood the practicalities of how politics works and what you could do. Of course, it was Cosgrove who used to say that politics is the art of the possible. And... Uh, Unfortunately, it wasn't possible to hold the President and Paddy in their constitutional roles at the same time. Former Taoiseach
2: Garrett Fitzgerald, the then Minister for Foreign Affairs, was at the heart of matters as the crisis
3: unfolded. Yes, it was unfortunate. Uh, I think the President was quite right to refer the bill. Couldn't see what the fuss was about. If you been a bill like that, There's a lot to be said for the President to refer to the court to have it certified that he can stand up and won't be challenged. where security is involved, I think that was a good idea. He had a different view, and it was unfortunate. And then Liam Carlsgrave was very loyal to his ministers, um, uh, should I think of taking action. And Paddy had once offered to resign, and it was turned down by Liam Carlsgrave. And I don't think it was realised, I said, which the president wasn't happy being president. His wife wasn't happy either at the time and so that uh, he was vulnerable and I knew that he he was uh, you couldn't rely on staying <laughs> given his shoes dropped he out was unfortunate I'd seen him the day before and he was certainly cheerful and I reported to him because he looks alright he's in good form he's in good form because he was going for goodness sake I didn't realise that and then I got a phone call to come down to the teacher's office It was there three minutes from Foreign Affairs and the outrider was bringing a message from the Oros to me you were the walls of course yes um, so that's what we do, and I said, "Well, yet, resign?" And he said, "So uh, Liam Ryan." Of course, of course, he never resigned. Certainly, resigned now. It was too late, of course. Chris Lennon believes a president with a different
7: persona might have seen the situation resolved without the subsequent fallout. I think he 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 didn't have a sensitivity uh, to how difficult uh, Carullo-Daly might prove I, uh, in the in the atmosphere of the time you would have thought that uh, this kind of silly remark uh, w- would have been brushed aside. But Carullo Dolly wasn't that kind of person. This is not a word you normally use for uh, in relation to... But he was a bit pernickety. And, uh, like, at a, a resignation which was offered or an apology which was offered, but refused. Uh, both of them were refused. They could have sorted it. But that didn't happen. I think a different personality of a president would, would have uh, kind of excused Paddy uh, that he was one of these ebullient uh, characters. A lot of people might have thought uh, what Paddy said, but unfortunately he said it. Did Paddy regret what he said? How did it affect him or his standing with the
2: Fine Gael party in Louth? Betty Conaghan, his political secretary, didn't believe it had much impact.
9: Well, I tell you, Paddy was a loyal supporter of uh, Liam and an admirer. It had been a loss to the country. He was a very hard-working minister. And he did, you know, he was. You never got any feeling now what it was privately for him, I do not know. But... Um, No, I never sensed any feeling of regret, shall we say, which one would expect if it was true. But uh, he got on with it, just yeah.
10: And Pat Bellew was in agreement. He said what he said, probably not the right thing to say, not in the right place. It might have affected his standing within the party, maybe, but certainly not in the county. Not among his own in the county, anyway, so it, it didn't matter there, I think. You know, it was unfortunate, but... That's
2: the way it was. Fine Gael Minister Fergus O'Dowd believes Paddy paid for those three
11: words. But clearly he expressed a very strong view and he was entitled, obviously, to have his opinions. But the fact that he was the Minister for Defence and that the President held office as the Commander-in-Chief, that was the constitutional issue. He said that he regretted saying them and he withdrew them. And, I mean, that's history now. Paddy had to, re- to leave his job and then he moved on to a different position after that. So he paid a high price for it as well. Uh, but it is history and it is the past and the good things about Paddy were the things I remember. There
2: were so many good sides to Patrick Sarsfield Dunnegan, who was born on the 29th of October 1923, into a Monaster Boy's family, as Roseanne, his daughter, recalls.
0: His dad was Thomas Francis Dunnegan, one of 13 children that were born here at the inn. And his mother was Roseanne Butterly of Lurgan Boy. He was an an only child and uh, lived here with them. He was on his own, but um, his cousin Nellie Butterly was sent over to spend time with him. You know, in the old days, like she was one of seven sisters. So the children were kind of farmed out. And she, she spent a good bit of time. And Patsy Murray was another cousin. She also spent time here as well. Then, uh, you know, he went to school locally. Jackie
12: Mullen, an old school pal, has fond memories of Paddy growing up. Went to school in Fieldstown, way back in the 30s. He was at school up there, something happened, and he was taken out of Fieldstown school, and he was sent to New York school. He went to your school then, and I uh, more or less lost contact with him. He, he went to the brothers, and he went to college, and all this after that, but... As a kid, we were always friendly and we were always this, but he was on a different line of sport than I was on. After his primary education locally, Paddy headed to secondary school in
0: Dublin. Then he went to Castlenaw College, but he didn't finish there. In about fifth year, he was taken home. I think his mother became ill, so he was taken home to help run the business with his father. We had the farm and the inn was uh, a pub and the grocery you know, it was typical, you know, small holding in the country of that time. And
2: Jackie remembers Paddy's many sporting interests as a young man.
0: He
12: was mad in the gun job, and uh, he had an uncle over there, Harry Dunigan, was mad in the gun, and there was a priest in new who was mad on the gun too. And Paddy was always at the gun, and he used to be at all these gun outings. And he had an accident at one. Then, I don't know, sometime he was at the boxing. He got into the boxing club. But most of his time, he was playing football with the Mags football team in Rada. Terry Doolin and uh, Ali Halpin would be all more or less his pals, I think, at that time. Paddy met and courted Olivia Mackin, and after a
2: couple of years, they tied the knot.
0: They were married on the 16th of February 1954 in Slain Church and then the bride and groom and the congregation, the guests, walked down the street down to the hotel. In the Cunningham Arms, uh, which was mum's mother's hotel. So they had a great day, I believe.
2: And the clan consisted
0: of? There's four of us. My sister Annette, who sadly passed away in 2011, my brother Tommy, myself and then my brother Vincent.
2: Wife Olivia paints a picture of the man she knew and loved. Oh,
13: he was great. He was always very nice and friendly. And always anything you wanted or anything. He'd bring you anywhere you wanted or anything. He was so good, wasn't he? Well, usually we wouldn't go out in the evening. We Maybe go for a drive and, you know, get out and go for a walk. But we never did anything extraordinary, you know. We just were dead easy, weren't we? He was a marvellous man, always busy he wouldn't he wouldn't be happy unless he was busy. His life was to be doing things. He, I never saw him sitting down in the evening time and reading the paper in the at the chair in the at the fireplace. You know the way the days gone by. you sat at the fire and read the paper or whatever. The men did, but he was very active, very, very active. I don't think he'd have been happy if he hadn't all those things to think that he had, anything had fallen through that he was going to, it would be dreadful. He'd be very upset, he'd be very annoyed. Oh, he, the day wasn't half long enough for him. And he would get through so much, wouldn't he? Oh, he had a very busy time. And he, he'd a great head, he'd a great memory.
2: So how did the Monaster Boy's Inn evolve and its reputation as a top-class steakhouse happen?
0: It was a public house and a little grocery and we used to get the orders from all the locals, the local families, and the postman in the afternoon then used to run the deliveries off to the families from the grocery. Mum and Dad renovated the actual private house into the restaurant, and then it sort of grew little by little to what it is now. I think it was about 1958. At one point the road was being upgraded, and the guys who were working on the road, the do you know the labourers and the engineers and the quantity surveyors and all? They used to come in at lunchtime and Mum had started to serve uh, soup and sandwiches and the like. And Dad just happened to be home one lunchtime and saw all this going on and went back into the kitchen and to Mum and said, well, you know, those men, they don't need sandwiches, they need steak. So they set about actually serving steak from then on, which was no bother to Mum because... Um, Obviously, she had the catering background. She ran a hotel for her mother, so it was cool. My granny, Mac and Dorothy Mac, and she had the the hotel in Slane, the Cunningham Arms, and also a hotel in Virginia. So catering was easy for Mum because, you know, she grew up with it, basically, you know.
10: Pat Bellew recalls Paddy's first run for the doll. I remember in uh, 1954, he went up for the first time for the party and um, he got elected in 1954. And I remember we were here um, waiting for him to come home, and there came a phone call from Dundalk, where the count was taking place, to see I'd be here in an hour. So we had to get the bonfire blazing, and we had a banner across the road here uh, as well. So it was great excitement that night. But the reason he got elected was that um, uh, James Coburton died. And at that time, Fianna Fáil had two quotas in Fine Gael had approximately one and a quarter, thereabouts. So there was a by-election after George Coburn died, with the result that uh, his son George went forward and he got elected, probably a sympathy vote or whatever. So then there was a general election called. Donegan got elected with George Coburn. And the reason he got elected was because George Coburn got such a high vote again, probably sympathy vote.
2: And Betty remembers fondly that first campaign.
9: My
10: first working in Finley
9: Gale was Paddy's first election. And I worked on the railway then and I had my fortnight's holidays prior to the election and I spent in the office with them. Well, Margaret Yaggin from Cullen managed Joe Megan was his secretary. And that's where I spent my holidays. And this June, I think it was. And he made it, of course. And that was the time of... The the public meetings, which were great then, the rally, and he he just swept the country. Larry Walsh got dressed up the sitting one, and you know what an old Paddy that he put about. He felt, you know, putting an older man out, but uh, he was just, he was a breath of fresh air.
2: Isabel San Roma, Fine Stalwart, was in Georgia Street for the Victory Parade as a young girl.
14: I was then in Georgia Square with my father. My father was a great supporter of Paddy's, and he always went around putting up the posters and whatever, climbing the poles, as the men used to say. And I was very young, and I remember him taking me down by the hand. And when we arrived, there was um, a truck, and Paddy was up on the back of the truck, and they had all these torches right around, and he was standing there... So handsome. He was such a wonderful young man. I also remember the headlines in the Drogheda Independent. It said, Blonde bombshell hits doll Aaron. And that was the truth. You can imagine back in the 50s, it was like we had a movie star.
2: However, in every political
10: career, there's highs and lows as Pat Bellew can vouch for. But then in 57, the... Coburn's vote collapsed down a lot, which they thought that Paddy had lost out, and Fianna Fáil got their seat back. It was very depressing, actually, you know, but I wasn't surprised because uh, I knew Coburn's vote wouldn't hold, you know. So he lost out in 57, but then he got elected to the Shannon. So he was there then till 61, and at that time George Coburn stood down, and then Paddy, of course, became the main Finnegan man in the county. So he won every election subsequent to that. Like He won won them all. Paddy's winning back the seat in
2: Louth in 1961 was doubly special for the Donegan family, as Roseanne reveals.
0: That was the day I was born. Two really good things happened. He got elected and I was born. And he took off from here really early in the morning and had a puncture on the way to Dublin and abandoned the car and got a taxi to drive him to uh, to the nursing home where her mum was. So... Um, he always used to joke about how expensive I was. cost him a fiver to get the rest of the way to Dublin.
2: There was tremendous rivalry between Paddy and Fianna Falls Porrick Faulkner and Louth. They were opposites politically and personality-wise. But yet, beneath it all, there was a closeness, as Nicky Fitzpatrick recalls.
4: But he was a great friend of uh, uh, Paddy Faulkner's as well. Like. Like, he used to send his lorry around, that time to give speeches outside the churches every Sunday. And like, he, when he was finished giving the speech, he'd let Paddy Faulkner up on his lorry to, to, to see heavy. he They got on well.
2: Betty remembers another woman who worked closely with Paddy and tells us about the demands on the politician from his constituents.
9: He had his secretary, Phil Bell, and was... Phil was as a an encyclopedia. She was just wonderful, you know. And uh, Phil did all the political end and all that until he was made minister. And uh, he took Phil with him to Dublin. She knew what he was thinking, you know. And then that's when I stepped in as the political secretary. And by God almighty, anyone that goes into politics is mad. They really are, because... I was in at the deep end and I was out every night of the week at meetings. The clinics were Monday night. I think Paddy was the first to start the clinics in Ireland and he used to do the two, the one night which was rough, it was rough on a Monday night, my God the crowds. That used to be waiting for him. So there was all kinds of things, looking for houses and people stuck in flats and you name it, they were looking for help. And if, whatever he did, whatever he could do, he did. There was more Fianna followers than Philly Gaylors. They're looking, you know. And the way he felt, he was elected for all the people, not just Philly Gaylors. And people will tell you that. Some of them wouldn't. They wouldn't give him the credit But he did, he walked tirelessly and he saw through from the beginning that there was an ending, whether it be good or bad. He did his best for them, you know.
2: Beside his role in public life on the national stage, Paddy was a member of Louth County Council, where he served as chairman from 1967 to 1973. Jim Mooney tells a story of Paddy's personal generosity that made a difference in ordinary
6: people's lives. Yes, he was a, uh, on the Loud County Council. He was a very, very good uh, worker for the ordinary people. I remember him telling me uh, in Loud Village they had a bad housing problem and uh, the Loud County Council were very short on funds. Now, a site had come available, but they had no money. So Paddy paid the deposit on it and the housing thing started there. Which was a a great boost. He was that type of man that uh, he liked to do something positive to help people. That Paddy was apolitical is
2: borne out by Nicky Fitzpatrick's Election Day tale. It didn't make make a a
4: difference what party belonged to if you looked for a job.
15: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot
1: And he had one. Policy didn't
4: come into it, you got it. You understand me? Now, you know that unless you're attached to certain parties this past couple of years, you didn't get yeah, a job. And there was a great crack years ago, the polling boot was in concern, and he was passing down by, and nobody used to have the tables outside the gate. And he went down, and there was nobody to man the table outside. He said, No problem. I go down to the mill. Castle Bridge and he gets someone up for the mill and he went out into the mill and there was 16 or 17 workers in it, but there was none of them in the <laughs> and they wouldn't go and he paid them but they didn't get their, their cards to them, you know?
2: Canvassing and meeting the people was very important to Paddy who pressed the flesh in his
11: own unique way as Minister O'Dowd remembers I remember canvassing all oh, years and years ago and sometimes he canvassed with a dog, he'd go around with his dog, he'd bring him around the streets and they'd see Paddy with the dog and he'd chat to everybody. He was a lovely, friendly man. You know, he would a mischievous grin, he was larger than life, he was he was all go and all business and the people in Drogheda loved him as well because I, I know from canvassing with him there... Pierce Park, people at Pierce Park had great time for him, and indeed Ballsgrove. And you know he was a man for all the people, regardless of where you came from in the town. He was there to work for you. Around 1997 or thereabouts, when I I was running for the doll that time, and Paddy came round with me, and that was a revelation. So I called out to the house here to him, and he said, "Right, we'll start." So you started at his house, and then he went round all the lanes, and he went into everybody. Everybody knew him. Everybody say come on in for a chat Paddy and he chatted away so he went there he helped me every possible way he could we, he he was with me all the time uh, when he was well enough to be with me and I respect him greatly for that and um, like I didn't know half the people he knew them all and as well as that uh, he brought with him a blue shirt, believe it or not. It was actually his grandmother's uh, blue shirt and he would go round and she wore it in, you know, a long time ago and he was very proud of that and he was very proud of the political association with it and uh, he would show it at the door and you know, it was great, great fun.
2: The Donegan election team was legendary, so much so that they were summoned to the west of Ireland to get behind a first-time young Mayo Dáil candidate.
14: On one occasion I was home on holidays from Spain and... A knock came to the door in George Street. My mother, everybody was there, and it was Frank Smith, Paddy's driver. And he said they were going to uh, Mayo to canvas for a young man who his father had just died very suddenly. And they were going down to canvas, and when I joined them, so, of course, I got ready and away, and we went for the weekend. Quite a number of people went from Draw They used to call us, you know, the A team of canvassers. So, off we went down, and we spent the whole weekend in the highways and byways looking for votes for Ender Kenny. And thank God he was elected. And to this day, whenever I meet Ender, you know, say, Do you remember when I was done canvassing for you? So, that was. That was what Paddy Donegan was like. He wanted to share, you know, the people that he knew with everybody. He brought us to meet all kinds of people, ministers, everybody. He was just a brilliant man, and even to this day, when people that I know that canvassed with him. When we get together, we just talk about him and talk about the times that we had with him. And certainly, this thing about thundered and whatever, he was just a thundered and wonderful man.
2: Having spent all of his career on the opposition benches, which was demanding in its own right, the entry was upped when Paddy crossed over to take his place on the government side for the first time in 1973. Joe Keneally was assigned to drive the new Minister for Defence, who put his life on the line in the course of his duties. I just try to keep warning ahead. If we
8: were going up to Dundalk now, you see, there was, well, would be tricky situations there because you wouldn't know who was in what pub in Dundalk, like, you know. And uh, uh, why give advance warning to the guards in Dundalk that we were there for a meeting or something. You see, you wouldn't know the heck who was who, really. You know, but then we had to be extra careful. and and we were. And remember, we had a very important person on board that was our job to take care of, which we did to the best of our ability. You see, we were armed anyway, but we always carried a pistol with us. I mean, that's before we went to Ivington, and we had them all along before that, because of the situation on the north and south. Relations weren't great, really, you know. It was just a precaution, really, if anything happened. We had instructions to... Carry on, what was supposed to do. I didn't feel like shooting anyone if I didn't have to. Oh, the driver was armed, yes, as well as the escort. They were armed with
2: the heavy stuff. We always had an escort. And Betty Conaghan recalls a couple of hairy occasions in our time with the minister.
9: I remember one time doing a clinic in Dundalk and it was the night Mary Drum was murdered and there was an angry gang outside that thought Dunningham was there and disappointed it was only me but um the the guards i know were in the novel state' how they were going to get me out because they were angry but uh, i know eventually the, they arranged for the the car to come it was big Joe they call him joe keneally was driving and and uh, his bodyguard and he he kept the engine running up and the door, had to run <laughs> And another time, we're coming from a meeting. And Paddy was with us that time. He was in the front with Joe. I was in the back. And there was this car stopped as we came out of Dundalk, lights flashing. And it kept passing us out. And all I can remember is coming round with Quill fur. You know what? Isn't it Quill for around the corners? And it passed us on the corner. And I was waiting for that. I can't go me. It was frightening. But... Uh, and so immediately, it was to get Paddy said, I'm coming home, get me home. Unfortunately, he said, Minister, he was number one. And, uh, but it was supposed to be an innocent, uh, he was out testing the car, it wasn't. No. I was a local teller from Dundee. but uh, it was frightening.
2: Round-the-clock security was part and parcel of life for the Dunnegan family and staff at the Monaster Boys Inn. And on one occasion, Jim Roddy says, catastrophe was narrowly avoided.
6: I was working that day and there came a phone call to say that there was a bomb on the premises. We tried to clear the place that evening, that day, but nobody believed it. We, got a, we had a big job to get the people out. Eventually, we did. The manager at the time was um, Pascal him from any gassing he thought some there was somebody inside he went back inside the check and while he was checking the toilets the bomb went off on the bottom wall of the restaurant it blew a fair big hole and it shattered all the bottles of wine and spirits there was along the counter but the next day the staff and locals all Bunched in and we got the place. The place was open the next day.
2: Besides politics, farming and the hospitality business, Paddy became a significant player in the grain and agri-supply sector, according to one of his right-hand
6: men in the business, Jim Mooney. Well, he started up in Annie Gasson, as I say, and he started there in an old mill driven by a water uh, wheel. Then he moved to Castle Bellingham and he opened up a, quite a big grain operation there. He started in Annegast in 55, moved to Castle Bellingham in 58. Then in Drogheda, he moved to Drogheda in 1961 and he bought the Drogheda Oatmeal Mill and Company on Merchants Quay. It was in the Merchants Quay premises that he made a flake oatmeal under the trade name of Bowen, or the Irish for Bowen. Then he developed a market on the flake meal and he exported to America under the trade name of, of Pride of Air and then after that he bought Cairns's Brewery on the Marsh Road where Scotch Hall is now. That was in 1961 and he carried on from that till 1982. He had an agency for malt barley for Arthur Guinness and this was a great, great boost for the farming area of Loudmead and North Dublin. He was a very good employer in the region of 150 and during the harvest peaks, which ran from usually August to the end of October, he would have another extra hundred people.
2: Businessman Neil Lund began his working life in Dunnegan's as a young man and knew all about Paddy's good nature. He was
8: generous to a fault with a lot of his friends, uh, and uh, there was nothing that Paddy wouldn't do for people. And he was also incredibly generous with his time and commitment uh, towards people who had run into difficulties in, in, in their in their lives, whether it was their work life or whatever. Paddy was uh, always a, a, a somebody that you could turn to or they would turn to. Uh,
2: to help them out. A childhood memory of neighbour Teresa Devon reveals another side to Paddy's generosity.
16: My recollection is that every Christmas, this would, would have been the early 60s, and every Christmas um, for a number of years, Paddy Dunigan and his wife Olivia would have brought myself, my brother, my sister, my mother, and there was another family as well, and we would all go off in cars to see Santa Claus in Dublin. That was a huge thing at the time because not many people would go to Dublin at that at that stage, particularly children. We would go to see Santa Claus and then we were taken to the doll for our tea. And, you know, like we got we got treats there that you would never get at home at the time. There was all sorts of goodies and chocolate biscuits and, and all sorts of things like that. And it was very, very exciting for us as children. Now, I was very small at the time, but I can remember it and I can remember I remember coming back through O'Connell Street and they stopping at Henry Street to let us see the lights and just all oh, the glitter of the lights. And it was really exciting as a child. Now, I, you know, I have great memories of that. Yeah, my dad died before that. I was only eight months old at the time. So, like, it was a very nice thing for them to do for us because we never would have got to do anything like that if, you know, if they hadn't done it.
2: And Theresa's mum, Anna Devon, was equally impressed by that annual trip to Dublin, but for a different reason.
9: And then they... they Took us over to the doll, Paddy and Mrs. Dunnegan. Paddy, yeah, Mrs. Dunnegan. And uh, we got her tea, which was lovely, and biscuits and all the goodies we would never see. And uh, then we were sitting at the table with the James Dillon, he was the the leader of Inigale at the time, and he was sitting at the same table as us. And uh, well, I her, I was. Elect. <laughs> because I was a, a Finnegan supporter all my life, and I imagine being sitting beside the, the, the leader of memory.
2: When Paddy was round, things always happened as Roseanne casts her mind back to Christmas time.
0: Oh, there was always a special air, you know, you never knew what was going to happen next, and there was a new energy about the place. It was just really exciting. At Christmas time, he used to go off into Fair Street and take all the orphans out of the orphanage and bring them out here to the inn and give them, you know, a lovely big meal. And then he had presents for the girls and for the boys, all wrapped in different paper. Like, we'd grey crack those days. We, I mean, for us as kids, we'd like loads of kids to play with on the day. It was brilliant, fantastic.
2: He was kind to a fault, especially to his own. And as neighbour Jim recalls, he wasn't short and good-natured divilment.
6: Yeah, I was born uh, right next door to Paddy. And I knew him from when I was a kid. Uh every Sunday he'd come to me for to go to the matches in Crow Park. I remember well, forty-nine, fifty, fifty-one, those great matches with leather Than Mead, the draw the draw matches, etc. But uh he he was devious in ways, you know. Uh he would bring me to the matches and he decked me out in the loud colours, red, white, rosettes and hats and you name it. And he'd drive me home in the evening and run me in to me mother and father, who, Lord rest them, were mad mead people. But he took great pleasure out of this.
2: There was no end to Paddy's interests or talent as driver-come-good friend Joe Keneally enjoyed sailing the high seas with the minister on his boat, Whirlaway of Hoth. Oh, he
8: was. He was a, he was a very keen sailor. Great into navigation and all that sort of stuff as well. Like, you, know, he, you know, we used to bring some of some of the kids with us and go to the Isle of Man for a weekend and back. Two of us did all sorts of sailing and so we raced around uh, Marks and Holt and Scarries and we did a few distance one across from Abersock and Wales and Hollyhead to Dundary and, and Holt. And then we went on a long trip down to France on, on holiday sailing, you know, which was very good. We, called it uh, the Salcombe River on the way and there was a party on there and there was all sorts of boats dressed overall and we brought Pearl away in and dressed her over all as well with our flags and then we went into the Channel Islands on the way, down to the Minkies and into the Minkies rather and into Samado and spent a fortnight around the corner in Erke and came back from there, and had, uh, we stopped at the sillies coming back. So that was a marvellous trip
2: that everybody enjoyed. And Paddy's love of horses was legendary, as Roseanne can tell us.
0: I loved horses. He loved loved all animals, but he loved horses. He used to hunt here for Monaster Boys with the lads, and uh, he kept a couple of horses way, way back, but that never really went anywhere. But he had us all riding. We all rode every Christmas morning before breakfast, it was great fun, yeah, all round the roads here. But I still think of it every Christmas morning.
2: And his equine interests brought Paddy and an arch-rival into cahoots to
6: the astonishment of a Fianna Fáil stalwart. Mick Dillon, Lord rest him. He was a blacksmith, and uh, he was a great, great Fianna Fáil follower, but used to drink in Donegan's pub every night. But this day, anyway, he was in the forge, which was just down the road, about 150 yards from the Monster Boys Inn. Some customer that was in with him says, come on out, Mick, to the door. Did you see this? Mick went out to the door. And here was Paddy Donegan and Charlie High coming riding two horses. The poor man nearly fell out of his stand. He could not believe. He was completely disillusioned with what he saw. He thought these politicians would be at each other's throat. And here was the two jokers coming, riding two horses down the road. So he went to the pub that night, and everybody that came into the pub... He'd say, what do you think I saw today? I saw them two so-and-sos <laughs> riding two horses. I don't think I'll ever vote again, he says.
2: <laughs> Paddy played and loved all things GAA, but he also had an affinity with the foreign game.
0: Yeah, The Donegan Cup was a cup that was contested between Jordan and Endorke. It was great, great fun going to those matches. It was great crack altogether. But he had a little football team here with all the local lads when Tommy, my brother, was young, and they were called Shankly Secrets. And um, at the time we had a horse lorry, and he used to, we used to all get into the back of the horse lorry and go off to play football with other teams. You know, it was great fun. He definitely was a great admirer of Bill Shankly.
2: Jimmy Beryl, who's worked at the inn all his life, remembers a famous night in 1985 when then world
17: champions Italy visited Dublin and his boss and himself headed for Fibsborough. Back in when Italy won the World Cup, I drove him up to the doll. He went about his business. I went and got the car service up. So up from the doll, and we had tickets for the match in Daily When we got there, of course, the gates were out of being rushed or pushed open, whatever, they were, and, of course, no seats for us even. So we went down to the pub, down about 500 yards down the street, and as soon as he walked into the pub, the barman says, ''Good evening, Mr Duncan. And he cleared a seat for him at the counter in front of the TV. Right. This was amazing. When we left there after the match, went to the, went to coming home through the Phoenix Park, went into the hole in the wall, and the same thing happened there. And I was amazed at this, you know. Even the barman and strange pubs I didn't know, but knew knew them. We come on down the road at closing time into Cross McCole, little pub in Cross Macoll. And he says, pull up here, he says. And in we go, the pub was closed, in the back gate. And I said, we're going to be arrested here or something. Knocks on the door, walks straight in, and these people are in there having their supper, having tea and toast or something. Okay, Mr. Dunningham, you can have a drink, but that young is not getting any. And I, I was amazed that this. this was, just, he was just, everybody knew him. No matter where you went for him, everybody knew him. He was, he was some coacher.
2: Loud Fine TD Peter Fitzpatrick was a member of the Defence Forces and has nothing but praise for Paddy's time as Minister and his role in revitalising Fine
15: Every day of the week there, Paddy Dunning name name have mentioned the Irish Army because back in them days, anyone could get into the Army. If you had a criminal record or a minor criminal record, they'd actually enlist you into the Army. But in fairness to Paddy, Paddy started a recruiting uh, stage that day. got a lot of recruits in there. He got the whole standard up in the Army. And in fairness, the Army had uh, uh, benefited from, from Paddy. And Paddy was also involved with, with the equestrian in the Army. Paddy went away and he bought the, the decent horses and everything else. got the whole thing going. Like like Paddy, as John Burton said years ago, was, Paddy was one of the best uh, ministers for the defences that, that this country ever had like Phoenix Gale wasn't going too well back in the, in the 70s and 80s there and, and only for the likes of Paddy Donegan Paddy organised meetings he organised the dashes and like, Paddy was a fantastic organiser and people don't realise that like, like Paddy was, it was a member of the Dáil for 27 years and like 27 years is an awful long time in them days in the moment and like we've a lot to thank Paddy for like Fianna Gale for the last number of years has, has got very strong at the moment and like and, and, and in fairness it's all back to Paddy and, and his, his roots we've an awful lot to thank Paddy Donegan for as you know yourself, he was a family man. He was a uh, he was a publican. He was also a farmer. Like you know, he's one of these people never failed get his hands dirty. I have nothing but respect for Paddy Dunigan.
2: When he bowed out of public life in the eighties, Paddy devoted more time to some of his passions.
0: He read a lot, and he used to shoot a bit and reared pheasants. And you know, obviously, he loved his dogs and did a little bit of fishing and. You know, he, he he kinda led a quiet life, but he enjoyed it, you know. And then very laterally he was ill, so you know, his his outgoings were a little bit diminished. But um yeah, no, he had a he had a good quiet time after after he finished with politics.
2: Paddy passed away aged seventy seven on November twenty sixth, two thousand. A difficult time for the family.
0: Oh, the great sadness. The sadness was unbelievable. And it was just so palpable it was overwhelming absolutely overwhelming and then the droves of people that came up to the house there people were so amazing fantastic and all the stories we heard that we'd never heard before and the people we met or you know you'd have heard stories of old and you'd have heard people's names mentioned but you might never have met the people and then they'd arrive at the door and you're able to put it you know talk to them and put a name to the to the story it was fantastic really but incredibly sad you know
2: Kate Duffin was part of the congregation at Paddy's Funeral Mass and remembers fondly a play on words by the celebrant Paddy's
0: Funeral Mass was in Tenure Church which is the parish church and uh, Father McArdle was the priest so Father McArdle had you know visited the family and all the neighbours and he found out so much about Paddy and what a decent man he was and how clever he was and how good he was and all and uh, he said, um, in summary then, when he was given his eulogy at the Mass, he said, I'll say that Paddy was a thundering success. And John Bruton was there. And you know the big laugh he had. Well, it, we were all you know, really surprised and amazed. And it was you know, a terrific ending to it all.
11: So what is Paddy Donegan's legacy? Fergus O'Dowd pulls no punches. Well, I I think about Paddy, I admire him most, as I said, for standing up against the provisional IRA. That was really his most important point that that I can recollect from him. And indeed, we needed that clarity. We needed that clarity because the previous government, as you know, uh, some members of it were sacked by Jack Lynch because they were alleged to have been gun running at the time. There was a trial in the High Court. There was, you know, there were there were, there were you know there were refugees coming from the north into our into our own county and indeed out to Gormiston to a serious civil strife north. And it could have moved south, and it didn't. It didn't because of people like Paddy Donegan and people like Jack Lynch, who said, No, we're not going down this road. You know, we're not going to support violence. We're going to solve this issue constitutionally and through democratic politics, which is what they did.
2: Paddy may be gone,
17: but his memory lives on, as Jimmy Beryl can testify. At the moment, the amount of people that come in and talk about him, and everyone, I haven't, I'm here 30, 31 years at the moment, and nobody has ever said about war about him. Even uh, Fianna followers, whatever, Sinn Feiners, never, never said a bad word about him. If he could do a good turn for you seemingly, he did. So, so many people come in here and say, I knew Paddy Dunnegan when he was such and such. Or, my father knew him or my father worked with him or I worked with him. But of course he had a lot of employment. I give a lot of employment in County Loud uh, way back and well, before my time. <laughs> probably. But he was, no, he's very well got and very well known.
2: Lifelong Fine member Nicky Fitzpatrick Says Paddy was a true blue.
4: He was a true, a true, true politician, Finn Gale to the backbone. Nothing else meant to answer to him, only Finn Gale. But he was a real politician, and he certainly wouldn't stand for what's going on in politics at the present time. Paddy Dunning is shot from the hips, straight from the hips, as I called as he saw it. Make no mistake about it.
2: Straight from the hip is right as RTE reporter Tom McCochran found out when interviewing Paddy after the gun-running ship Claudia was intercepted off Helvick Head with a catchment of arms destined for the IRA in 1973.
4: I don't know. You see, we were, we we're only on Radio I'm up all night, you see, and we're getting the radio uh, information coming in. Do you know the country of origin of the arms? No, I don't know that country, no. Well, do you think that these arms were destined for the IRA? I have no uh, opinions on that except that... Uh, Certainly they were not being brought in here to shoot ducks.
2: And what does it mean to Roseanne on carrying the Donegan name and her dad's legacy?
0: Oh, I'm immensely proud. It's You know, it's a real legacy to be to be his daughter, to be one of his children. Everywhere you go, when you say where you're from, people ask, oh, do you know the Dunnegans? And, and then it opens up, you know, it's, it's super, really fantastic. We leave the final words to Isabel San Roma.
14: But the one thing, I was trying to think the other morning at home, What would I like to say about him? And I really would want to say that Paddy remained a man of the people all his life. Like he played football with Eddie Mullen, who lived across from us. He played with Ned Zarey. He went into their homes, he sat at the side of the fire, he was with their mothers, he was just a man of the people and even when he became minister, as all those years passed by and I still remained friends with him, as minister he was still that simple, nice guy, that man from Monster Boys, that footballer, a man of the people, that was Paddy Donegan.
17: Every night I sit here by my window no. Staring at Lonely avenue. avenue. Watching lovers holding hands and
8: laughing. Laughin'. And thinking about the things we
6: used to do.
9: Up
12: things. Like a
6: walk in the park. Things. Like a kiss in the dark. Things.
10: Like a sailboat ride. Things.
2: Far from a thundering disgrace, the Paddy Dunigan story on LMFM, supported by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, Sound and Vision Fund.
1: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare
6: short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for
14: you. Learn more at uh1.com.